Uh, well, welcome today. So glad to have you joining us. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And I just want to say to you a really warm welcome. You know, one of the most uh, famous theologians of the last century was a guy named Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth was a Swiss-born theologian who was working and living in Germany in the 1930s uh, during the rise of the Nazi party and, and Hitler coming to power. And he was one of the uh, one of the leaders of the German church who wrote uh, something called the Barman Declaration, which was a declaration that the church of Jesus Christ in Germany was not under the domination or was, should not be under the domination of the Nazi party or under the control of someone like Hitler. And in fact, not only did he sign that document, but he personally mailed it to Hitler himself. Now, it was the mid-1930s. He didn't lose his life for doing that, but he did lose his job. He was working as a professor at a university. They sent him back. Uh, he went back to Switzerland where he carried on his work. But the reason I'm bringing up uh, Karl Barth today is because he wrote one of the biggest, uh, most uh, famous sort of systematic theologies, uh, sort of textbooks about who God is and what the Bible teaches. It is four volumes long. It's over 9,000 pages, over 6 million words. And the reason I tell you that is because this guy knew a little bit about God. This guy spent his life thinking about God. And, and, and a number of years later, he was on a tour, a lecture tour in the United States. And, and after his lecture, there was a question and answer time. And one of the people got up and said, Dr. Bart, could you tell us what is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? That's quite a question. But instead of blowing him off, this, the person with the question, he actually thought about it. He thought about it for like quite a while. It was just this long pause. He thought about it. Finally, he, he lifted his head. And he said, the greatest thought that has ever passed through my mind is this. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And it's really just the heart of, of the message of the gospel that God loves us so much through Jesus and because of that, we can have life. And probably the most succinct place in all of the Bible where this is expressed is in the verse we're going to look at today, John 3.16. John 3.16, probably you've seen it printed on mugs or on t-shirts. You've seen it famously, uh, posters of football games. Uh, there's, uh, the, these guys are having a ball and behind it, the guy's holding up his sign. Uh, Tim Tebow, uh, who became a famous NFL uh, quarterback, but when he was a college quarterback, he led his team, the Florida Gators, in the championship game against Oklahoma and un under the eye, the black eye, the, what do you call that? This black eye underneath, he wrote John 3.16. And apparently, somewhere like 94 million people Googled what is John 3.16 during that game. I mean, it's printed everywhere in all kinds of places. It's printed on the shopping bags of Forever 21, at the bottom of, of the, uh, the In-N-Out uh, can, uh, the, the, the pop bottles that they give you there. I mean, it's all over the place. And it's an incredibly succinct, beautiful verse. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't stand alone, at least not in Scripture. It's preceded by verses 1 to 15 and followed by verses 17 to 21. And, uh, and so to, to grasp it, we want to put it in its context. Uh, last week, we looked at verses 1 to 15, and it begins by describing this conversation that Jesus has with one of the 
religious leaders of his day, a man named Nicodemus. And, uh, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus to find out what Jesus is all about. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to know God, if you want God to be active in your life, if you want to see what he's doing in this world around you, then you must be born again, says Jesus, born from above. And Jesus explains what this means and what it looks like. And, and, and that's where we ended last week. But today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, Jesus carrying on this conversation. And so we're going to start today with John 3, verse 16. This is what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, up to this point in the conversation that Jesus has been having with Nicodemus, Jesus has been talking about, first of all, what? What do you need to do? You must be born again. You must be born from above. And then he's been talking about how. How does that happen? It's you're born of water and the spirit. In other words, your life is utterly transformed by the power of God at work in you. And this is something that the spirit of God works in your life. You can't make it happen on your own. And it, it's something that happens because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's all about the how, the what and the how. But now Jesus comes in his conversation to the why. Why? Why? you know, send Jesus. Why the, the death and the resurrection and, and the new life and the transformation and born? I mean, why all this stuff? And the answer that Jesus lays out for us so beautifully here is because of love. The motivation behind everything that God does here is because of his great love for us. Jesus says, for God so loved the world. Love is at the very heart of who God is. It's the essence of who he is. In fact, in another place, the Apostle John is writing again to those who are followers of Jesus. And he's talking about what our motivation should be and why our motivation should be what it is when we interact with others. Here's what he says. Dear friends, let us love one another. That's a call to you and me. Let us love one another. Love the people around us. For God... For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because God is love. Now, maybe that's news to you. Maybe it isn't. But sometimes we're too quick to take this idea that God is love for granted. We forget that all the other gods, or pretty much all of the other gods around the world, throughout history, even, even today, the things that people worship, rarely have anything to do with love. In fact, the most popular belief today uh, in our culture is that there is no God. And, uh, and, and uh, it, this belief was famously expressed by the atheist rocker Richard Dawkins, who writes this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. See, according to Dawkins, the force behind the universe is this simple, blind, pitiless indifference. There's nothing personal about it. There's nothing loving about it. When he takes this view that many people have and just sort of boils it down and expresses it with the true clarity that comes from that kind of a worldview, it turns out to be incredibly depressing, bleak, and frankly, really filled with hopelessness. 
But the God who is revealed to us from the, from the Bible, that's the exact opposite. He is love. Love like the, the kind of love that we sometimes have the privilege to experience in our own lives. Oh, only way better, way, way more pure, way deeper than what we've ever experienced for ourselves. And, and so in this verse, Jesus defines for us what the love of God is all about. He says this, for God so loved the world. So here's the first thing we know about God's love. God's love is boundless. It is limitless. Jesus says God loves the world. I mean, I mean he loves the Jewish people without question. But he also just as much loves the Gentiles. And God has a special place in his heart for the poor and the destitute and the needy. He loves them like crazy, but he also loves the uber rich. Yeah, and he loves those of us who are kind of somewhere in between. And God loves the people who vote liberal. He loves the people who vote conservative. He loves the people who vote NDP and Green. I mean, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. God loves you. He loves those who are most famous and those who are most forgotten. He loves the people of every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation. God loves the world. His love is limitless, expansive. But there's a second connotation to that, that that word. Uh, another sort of deeper meaning to this word the, the word, the Greek word cosmos, which we translate as world, throughout the Bible, not only has the idea of the world, but also has this sense of, it speaks to the brokenness and the, and the rebellion of the people against God. So it's not only is Jesus saying that God loves, you know, everyone in the world, he's saying that God loves the world even though it is in rebellion against him. That significantly intensifies the meaning of the love of God, doesn't it? I mean, I, I love ice cream. I love all kinds of ice cream. But it's a different kind of love to love somebody who hates me. So somebody who considers me irrelevant or, or evil or who snubs me. To love them, that's a different kind of love. But that's the kind of love that that God has for the world, says Jesus. Which means that he loves me. Means he loves you. He, he loves us even though we do things that are against him. Even though we sin. It, it, means, that, it means that he loves us when we do things that displease him. That, that he loves us even when we were in open rebellion against him. It means that he loves me when I sin and repent, and then go back and do that same sin again, and repent again, and then do that same sin again, and repent again, until I can barely imagine that he would even talk to me, much less forgive me, much less love me. And yet he does. And the same is true for you. It doesn't matter the baggage that you've got. It doesn't matter the mess that's kind of in the wake of your life. It doesn't matter the, the broken relationships or the financial failure or the, the insecurities or the doubts or the fears. I mean, it doesn't matter. He loves you. He loves you. I mean, that's, that's the message here. That's why Jesus says, whoever believes in him. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you believe in Jesus, I mean, you just need to know how deeply God loves the world. That's his motivation for sending Jesus into the world. 
And his love, his love is not only balanced, but also it's deeply personal. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the one and only, he, again, he uses a Greek word. It's the Greek word monogenes, which are both kind of English words that we have today. Mono means one, and genes means family or species or, or race. Um, and so what, what, what Jesus is saying is this. When we put our trust in, in, in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. But it's different than how Jesus was. Jesus was literally of the same genes. He, he, he was the very essence of God. He is God himself. So when God sends Jesus into the world, he sends himself. It's a deeply personal form of love, isn't it? Be, because, you see, the more you love someone, the more personal it gets, right? I mean, maybe you meet somebody and you say, oh, I kind of like that person. And you begin by, by exchanging words, right? You say, oh, you look beautiful. Or they say, oh, you, you, you are, I mean, you're handsome or you're smart or you're funny. Or, I mean, we just say kind things to one another. But if that, if that like, if that love begins to grow, then we begin to give gifts. We send flowers or we, we take that person on dates or they give us gifts. Or, I mean, and, and the, the, the gift giving just grows until at one point, often the gift is a ring. And then it gets really personal. I mean, it, it's deeply personal when you publicly, before God and your friends and family, publicly commit your life to that person. Now your love is, is getting real. Now it's deeply personal. But even that is only just the beginning because what happens after that in the, in the course of a marriage is that there's these places where you have to, you get to serve that person without expecting anything in return, without anyone noticing it or seeing it, and it costs you deeply. Now we're talking about love. And if you're married long enough, there are these seasons in a marriage that you will walk through that are just deep waters. It's just so hard. And, 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 and in those times, there will become times where literally you, part of yourself dies because of your love for the other person. It's a choice that you make and, and you give part of yourself away because you say, I'm going to walk with them and I love them. Now, love is deeply personal. And the ultimate, the ultimate example of love is if you forfeit your life for that person. If you literally give your life up for them. I mean, this is the kind of love that God has for us. It's not just words. It's not just gifts. It, it, it is this incredible commitment to us. But, but more than that, it's a willingness to, to die for us, to give his life for us. It's the ultimate expression of love, which is contrary to the Richard Dawkins view that behind the world is this just blind, pitiless, indifferent force. Because of the love of God. We have this deep confidence and this incredible hope as we walk through this life because we know that he loves us so deeply and he continues to reach out and walk with us no matter what comes our way. That's the kind of love that Jesus shows in God here in this passage. But then he, he goes on to say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so now we see that God's love is an action. 
It isn't just words. He didn't just come and sort of dwell among us to, to hang out, out with us. He came to save us. He came to, to rescue us. He came to give us life, eternal life. Because you see, there is a problem. Uh, it's not like we're just kind of hanging out here and God's a little bored in heaven. And he's like, oh, I'll come hang with you guys. No, no, actually, there's a major crisis going on among us. And it goes back to what I talked to at the beginning. We're sinners. We, we, we do things against God. We, we are rebels. We're insurrectionists. We, we are actively or have actively been involved in treason against his rule and his reign in our life. And therefore, as a result of that, the punishment due to us is, is eternal damnation in hell. Unless we're rescued from it. Unless someone comes and saves us from it. And the Bible warns us of the dangers of hell, of the, of the cost of hell. It, it, it's not like, well, yeah, let me describe it. The Bible describes hell this way. It, it, is the, it calls it the blackest darkness. Hell is a place of everlasting destruction, a, a place there where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus himself spoke about hell kind of regularly. If you read through what he, what he says and what he teaches about 10% of the time, he's referencing hell or, or teaching about, about hell. And he isn't being cruel when he does that. He's not using sort of religious scare tactics to kind of scare people into doing things. He's simply being blunt. He, he's simply being open and honest about what it is. It's like, it, it's like if, the, if you're driving down the road and you discover that up ahead is a bridge that's been washed out by a raging river and you turn around and you begin to flag down cars and say, don't go there. Don't, don't go down this road. The bridge is out. If you, if you do, you'll end up in the river and drown. I mean, that's not scare tactics. That's not cruel. That's not unkind. In fact, it's the opposite. It's kindness. In fact, to do it out in the pouring rain, to risk your life, to flag down those cars, that's love. And, and that's what Jesus says. He's like, I'm just telling you, I'm just warning you that, that this is a thing. Hell is the punishment due to those who rebel against God. And God, I mean, he's the one who's been rebelled against, the, the one who's been ignored and and treated as irrelevant and, and snubbed and sometimes hated. He, he's the one that we've sought to overthrow. And in his incredible love, in spite of all of that, he sends his own son to come and to suffer and to die so that we don't have to endure the punishment of hell. In fact, he comes to die in our place so that if we believe in him, if we accept what he says, or who he is, rather, we will experience eternal life. And the, and the word that Jesus uses there for life is not the Greek word bios, which means sort of the diversity of organic life, but rather it's the word zoe. Zoe, which, which means this intense, beautiful, fulfilling, deeply, deeply meaningful life. Jesus offers that instead. Starting now and stretching through all eternity. That's why in the next verse, in verse 17, Jesus says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God sent his son into the world out of his deep love, not to condemn us to hell, but rather to save us from hell. The thing is, you have to believe in him. 
you can't put your trust in other gods. You can't put your trust in yourself and how good you've been. It can't be sort of this idea that, you know, if I die and wake up and it turns out that God is real and he's there, that he might just sort of wink and nod and, you know, like, ah, it's okay, come on in. It's not how it works. Instead, you have to put your trust in him. Find your hope in him. Orient all of your life around him and, and live your life in light of what he did for you. And that, that's not so popular these days. I mean, people like the part about, you know, God is love. No, nobody minds that. It's reassuring and, and it feels good. But the, the idea that accepting him also means that you have to submit your life to him. That you have to allow him to be the leader in your life and follow his lead. I mean, some people get that and they, they go with it, but others reject it. They, they, they don't want anything to do with it. And, and this is what Jesus talks about next. He talks about those who reject it. Here's what he says in verse 18. He says this, whoever believes in him, referring to himself, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you accept the sacrifice that I made in your place on the cross, you will be saved. But if you don't, if you reject it, you will be condemned. And by condemned, he means condemned to hell. Now, that's not a very popular verse. I mean, you, you won't see a lot of John 3.18 signs, you know, at, at football games. Like, if you don't believe, you'll be condemned to hell. That, that's a totally different thing. And, and often, when people get to this part of Jesus' teachings, that's why they struggle. They, they love the, the love part, but then they, they, they simply dismiss this part. They say, well, if God is a good and loving God then how could he send anyone to hell? And that's a good question because Jesus just finished saying how much God loves the world, including those who are rebellious. So what's the answer? Well, that's what Jesus says next. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. Now, let's stop here for a moment. This is the judgment. Now Jesus uses courtroom language. Another version says, and this is the verdict. In other words, when you examine all the evidence and you cross-examine, when it's all been presented, this is what it turns out the, the answer to this question is. Here's what he says. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It isn't that Jesus comes to condemn the world. Instead, because of the great love that God has for people, Jesus came to rescue the world from punishment. But, but what the evidence shows, what, what the very clear examination of people's actions shows is that the people didn't want the love of Jesus. They, they rejected it. You see, you can never be good enough to earn the love of God. It's a gift. I mean, you, you, you could just never be good enough. You can never be bad enough to, to lose the love of God. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad you are. His love for you, it, it just always goes on and on. But it turns out that you can resist the love of God. It's like this. You know, when it comes to this choice, should I follow Jesus or, 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 or hell? I mean, lots of people think about it this way. It's like, or, or you could think of it this way. It's like you're in the middle of this massive, huge, raging river. And, and, 
and you're bobbing up and down in this little kayak and there's this danger that if you fall into the river, you, you'll die. The river is like hell. But, but, but you're kind of paddling along and you're slowly making your way when all of a sudden Jesus comes driving by in this big, beautiful yacht. I mean, it's, it's powerful and it's clean and it's warm and it's dry and you're kind of a little bit cold and the water is splashing. And Jesus says, would you like to come? I'll, I'll rescue you and, and I'll give you new life. And, and it, people think it's like, well, it's cool, Jesus. I like it, but but I'm okay in my little kayak here. I'm okay. You go on your way. I'm just going to make my way because if I join your boat, you're going to be the captain of your boat. And I don't want to be under you. I'm going to be the captain of my little kayak and I'll just keep going. That's the, that's the image that people have when they think about this. But it's not the, it's not the right image. It's, it's not what it's like. The, the way it really is, according to the, the Bible, is this. You, you're not in a kayak. You're already in the river. You're already beginning to drown. There's no way that you possibly could swim to the shore. And as you're splashing and as you're kind of wrestling with it a little bit, Jesus pulls up beside you in this huge yacht and he comes down, he rushes down and he says, let me rescue you, let me help you. We've got a, a towel and dry clothes and beautiful food and it's wonderful. And as Jesus reaches out to, to rescue those people, they literally, they swim away from the boat. They back off. They say, wait, wait, no, no. Actually, I prefer it here. Jesus, you're going to drown. No, no, no. I'm good. I, I, can, I can see the shore in the distance. No, no, let me help you, says Jesus. No, no, no. See, Jesus doesn't force anyone to receive his rescue, his salvation. Man, but, but, but when they don't, then the result is that they choose hell for themselves. Max Lucado says this, hell is the chosen home of insurrectionists. Hell is reserved not for those souls that seek God yet struggle, but those who defy God and rebel. So in history's greatest or highest expression of fairness, God honors their preferences. See, it's not what God wants. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. That's not his heart in the least bit. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, God says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their way and live. And the Apostle Peter writing in the, in the New Testament to one of the churches, he says that the, the, the delay in Jesus' return is because God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's not God's desire that anyone goes to hell because he loves people so deeply. The brilliant writer and thinker C.S. Lewis wrote this. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the very end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. See, this is what Jesus is saying. Here's the judgment. This is the verdict. How could a good and loving God send sinners to hell? He doesn't. They volunteer on their own. See, you can't accuse God of not being fair. God warns of the dangers of sin and the consequences of hell. He, and in his great love for us, even while we're rebels, even while we're in open defiance of him, he sends 
his own son to make a way of, of salvation who pays the highest price possible for us to be able to find life. But in the end, if you choose hell over that, if, if you refuse the love of God and the offer that he has in, to, to, to rescue you, to give you life, then it's not because he isn't loving and caring. It's because you chose those consequences in your life. Jesus says this. Again, I'll just read his words. He says, and this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. It's sobering. It's a warning. If you hear the Spirit of God calling in your life, do not ignore that call. But then he says this in verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus by saying that whoever chooses to trust in him, whoever, whoever does what is right and puts their hope in God will come to the light. But he says this, when they come to the light, the light will reveal that, that they are not some super amazing, superior person to everyone else, that they saw the light. No, no, it'll show instead that even the good works that they have done is only because of the love of God at work in their life. In fact, th this is the last point that we see here. And that's this, the love of God changes and transforms us. It's his work in our lives. You know, I once uh, had a chance to uh, visit a guy who restores old cars. Uh, he had me over for dinner, and after dinner, he said, you want to see the garage where I do all this work? I said, oh, yeah. And I've seen his cars. I mean, the, the stuff that he restores, they, they're, they're unbelievably gorgeous. But when I walked into his garage, he had these old, I think they were Chevys. It's hard to tell. I mean, they, they were a wreck. There were rusted doors and busted windows and some were missing engines and wheels off. And I mean, when I looked at that, all I saw was a mess. All I saw was like problems. But, but not him. When he looked at that, what he saw was a work in progress. What, what he could envision in his mind was what the finished product would be like. You know, sometimes when it comes to our own lives, when we look in the mirror, I mean, it's kind of like me when I looked in that garage. All we see is a mess. We just see brokenness and, and baggage and hurt and, and this sin that we struggle with. And we're like, oh, I, I don't know. But God, he sees this as a work in progress. He, he, he knows what he wants to do in our life. And he says, oh, no, John, you, you got mess in your life. You got issues for sure. But I'm at work in you because of my great love for you. So you just keep trusting me. You just keep allowing me to work in your life. It take time. But in the end, in the end, it's going to be a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul, he writes to the church in Ephesus. In the middle of this letter, he's writing. In the middle of this letter, he stops and he begins to pray for them, for us. Here's his prayer. Here's what he says. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. They have strength. They have the ability. He says, he's praying for an ability for us. That you may have the ability together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness 
of God. His prayer for us, his prayer for you and for me is that we would be able to grasp how great God's love is for us. It's so, so great. It, it almost surpasses knowledge, he says. He prays that we would know that because if you know that, he says, if you truly grasp that, then you'll be filled to the fullness of God in your life. If you truly grasp how deep the love of God is for you, it allows his love to come and to bring healing into the, the darkest places in your heart. In those places that are just shame and hurt that you can barely tell anyone about. In those places where there's, there's fear and brokenness and insecurities and anger. I mean, the love of God comes and heals that kind of stuff. If you understand how deeply love God loves you, it, it drives out that fear. It, it brings and it, it, it leads you away from sin and towards a love for what God is doing. It brings a fullness and a meaningness and hope into your life. And allow his love into your life allows that to become the motivation for how you live in relationship to the world around you, how you treat your boss and how you think about your mother-in-law and how you interact with your neighbor and how you see the world around you. When you see it in the light of how much God loves the world, it changes how you see the world around you. May you have the ability to comprehend just how deeply, how incredibly God loves you. Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's, let's pray together. Well, God, in a world that is, is filled with so much brokenness and so much pain, God, in a world where even the love that we know is imperfect and sometimes feels like the source of hurt down the road for us. God, in the midst of, of, of this world, we just thank you that you are love, that, that, that you are a God who loves us so deeply, regardless of the baggage and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain in our lives, regardless of our rebellion against you, regardless of all of those things, you loved us so deeply that you reach out to rescue us. God, may we grasp. May we really appreciate what that is. May we, may we, God, would you open our eyes to see how deep and wide and long and great is your love for us so that we might live in the full measure of who you are. God, we thank you for your love. We bless you. And we give ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us again today. If you have not been born from above, if you haven't been born again, I just want to invite you. You should be. It'll change your life. God will come and work in your life in beautiful ways. And if you don't know how to do that, you should catch up with me. You send me an email if you're watching online, jonathan at ridgechurch.ca. We'd love to walk with you and help you just be in this place where you know that God is at work in your life. Thank you for coming. I want to send you with these words today. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.